0: Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. I think it's fair to say there was a mixed response to last week's episode on the Oldham Riots. Today's a very different case. We head back to 2003 to look at a series of armed robberies. I'm delighted that this episode has been researched by a friend of the show, Chris Wood. Thanks, Chris. But before we start, a huge thank you to my new Patreon members this week. That's Alison FR, Johnny and Claire, and Debbie Rumens. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy the eight bonus episodes and all the other content on Patreon. But before we get started, a quick word from the sponsors of today's show, Tide.co. Let's face it, if you run a small business, the high street banks are just rubbish, aren't they? They really are. Weeks to set up an account, these bizarre fees from nowhere. None of the features you need and they're just so slow to react. At Tide.co, you don't have to put up with this. Contact them today to take advantage of an offer for listeners to this podcast of six months of free transfers. Let's be really clear about it that is 100% free account for six months before you move to a pay as go account but with none of those horrible monthly fees ever. To take advantage of this offer, please head to tide.co forward slash truecrime and use the promo code crime. That's tide.co forward slash truecrime and use the promo code truecrime. I'm also delighted that today's show is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's products, as I've told you plenty of times before, give me the best shave I've ever had for my delicate skin. And I always use their products. Why wouldn't I? I don't have to fight my way around the supermarket paying premium prices, but I can have it all delivered to my door for a great price. Join me and many others today by making your first order at Harry's for the special offer price of just £2.95, for which you'll receive a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover. Just go to harrys.com slash truecrime right now. That's harrys.com slash truecrime. A great shave and supporting your favourite podcast. Go on, do it right now. 2003 saw British capture the city of Basra during the Iraq war. The war effort was given a further boost when a statue of Saddam Hussein was toppled in Baghdad, which seemed to confirm the 24-year rule of his was finally at an end. Do you remember that moment, which seemed so significant at the time? As we will see, this event was very apt indeed for today's case. Also in the news at this time was the terrible news that the US Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated and crashed in Texas before its intended return to the ground, killing all seven astronauts on board. In Iran, a hugely powerful earthquake killed 20,000 people. Measuring 6.3 on the Richter scale, the earthquake also destroyed over 70% of buildings in the vicinity. In sport, towards the end of the year in November... England won the Rugby World Cup with a 2017 thrashing of Australia thanks to Johnny Wilkinson's last-minute kick. And from hero to zero, Lance Armstrong won his fifth Tour de France in this year. Friends of mine still struggle to come to terms with what he did. But a slightly more honest genius did announce himself to the world when Cristiano Ronaldo made his debut for Man United this year. What? Chris? We're gonna to have to talk about your writing if you keep including this sort of stuff. As all listeners to this show acknowledge, there is only one team of any significance in England, and they play in white at Ellen Road. I was loving the music charts at this time, with top spot in the UK taken by Fat Man Scoop and the Crookling Clan with Be Faithful, and in the US it was Youngblood Z featuring little John with Dam. 50 Cent in the Club was the most successful record of this year. In the winter of 2003, three people wreaked havoc across southern England and Wales. Some local communities, especially in South Wales, were terrified, wondering if they were to be next. Detective Inspector John Williams, who was leading the Gwent Police manhunt at the height of the robberies, said, I would certainly say they are the most dangerous gang in Wales. They have shown they will not hesitate to use violence in any way and have used it against children. They are very dangerous. South Wales Police Detective Inspector Paul Fenton warned People should take preventative measures, especially in rural areas. If you are working in an isolated place, make sure there is security as tight as possible. These people are professional and extremely dangerous. So, where did it all start? It was Thursday the 30th of October 2003 at around 4:50 p.m. when the first of these violent robberies took place. Woburn Green is a small village around 4 miles southeast of the town of High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. Close to the M40 motorway, it's easily accessible to London, which I guess is just an hour or so away by road. At the one-stop convenience store in the village, Shoppers were going about their normal business buying their groceries or microwave meals for dinner, when suddenly three men wearing balaclavas stormed inside. As we talk about so often on this podcast, a completely mundane and everyday event had very abruptly changed into something that people couldn't quite comprehend. But of course, as we know, it never happens near you, does it? A four-year girl was embroiled in this robbery as one of the masked men pointed a gun at her whilst an accomplice clubbed a shop assistant on the head with a baseball bat. Classy touch, huh? The shop manager said following the incident the young girl was incredibly distressed and was shaking and sobbing, as you'd expect. Unfortunately, the men were able to escape with just over £4,000 after making threats to the postmistress and they fled the scene in a getaway car driven by a fourth man. Only four days later, and no doubt buoyed by the success of the first robbery, the gang were at it again. The small market town of Romsey in Hampshire was the location. It's around an hour and a half south by road from the scene of the first robbery. At 5.20pm, there were two male customers in the post office and six members of staff, five women and one man. On this occasion, a masked raider casually walked in armed with a black handgun and demanded money. Mercifully, on this occasion no one was injured, and in fact, owing to the steadfastness of the 60-year-old female cashier, the robber was forced to leave empty-handed after her brave refusal to hand any money over. Look, I know we should give the money in these situations, but I still love it when people refuse, don't you? The would-be thief was then seen running from the post office with another man, before jumping into a gold-coloured car driven by a third man. This failed attempt did offer up descriptions of the men and police now had something to work with. They didn't have to wait long before they struck again though. It was only 90 minutes later in Bramley, which is still in Hampshire, and another one-stop convenience store was targeted. But this time the gang resorted to the heavy-handed thug tactics of the first robbery. As the three brave warriors entered the shop together, they threatened a 16-year-old cashier with a handgun and a knife to open the till. After taking the money from the till, they also stole £20 from the wallet of a customer before making their escape. This wasn't enough for the gang for one day, and there was still more work for them to do. They travelled north and back into Buckinghamshire, selecting a threshers-off licence as their next target. Although the same modus operandi was selected by the gang, this time the man that threatened staff members, had a rather different appearance. His face was obscured by a bizarre Saddam Hussein mask. You know the sort I mean. You often see them in joke shops. Apparently Donald Trump masks are all the rage at the moment. Any hope the staff may have had that this was just children playing around was quickly dashed, as one robber produced the usual handgun and knife before escaping with the contents of the till. So the 3rd of November had finally come to an end, the gang having tried their luck on three separate occasions. Detectives had now concluded that these robberies were all linked and the gang needed to be caught as a matter of urgency before the violence escalated. Detective Inspector Philip Chandler said, These criminals must be caught before someone is seriously hurt. He also asserted that the police believe the group to be based locally and appealed to anyone who may have information in relation to the gang or may have been present in the area at the time of the robberies, and so seen something. Despite this public appeal, the gang weren't deterred, as just the following day they were to strike again. Indeed, these robberies would continue at an incredibly alarming rate. Barely a day in November passed without the trio striking across Buckinghamshire, Hampshire, Oxfordshire, Surrey and South Wales. On the 9th of November, at the Southgate Country Club in Swansea, South Wales, the group added more ferocity to their attacks as one of the raiders broke an employee's collarbone with a baseball pat before a man and his wife were locked in a cupboard while the group ransacked the club and escaped with just over £4,000. Husband and wife stewards, Richard and Julianne Bailey, had just locked up for the night and they were about to count the takings in their cottage next door. Immediately after we got into the house, there were three little taps on the door, said Mr Bailey. I turned the lock and the door burst open. One came in and hit me with a baseball bat and shattered my collarbone. Another held a gun to my wife's head, saying they wanted all the money. One took my wife into the front room where the takings were, whilst another cut the telephone wires with his knife. They weren't afraid to use force and violence, so my wife just did as she was told. While Mr Bailey's wife was led around the house at gunpoint, he was kept to the floor with a baseball bat held at his head. I tried to listen to their accents, he said. There were two who sounded like they were from Lancashire or Yorkshire, and one sounded like he was from the Welsh Valleys. But once they had their money, their ordeal was far from over. He continues, They'd obviously checked the place for somewhere to lock us up while they made a getaway. We've got a larder, so they forced us in there and pulled our fridge, deep fat fryer and other things in front of the door. The couple remained off work for a long time, haunted by the sheer brutality of the attack. Mr Bailey said, I can't sleep at night, we're still in shock, and they could return. Someone is going to get really hurt if they carry on. By now, the majority of the robberies had been captured by CCTV, so the police were able to establish similarities between the raids, not least the fact that all three had now started to don a Saddam Hussein face mask. Why change a winning formula, I guess? As the gang had been committing the offences in several different areas, the case became a priority to a range of different police forces. As we know, this multi-handed approach has always served up difficulties for the police, particularly in the ways in which information is shared. And as such, the group were able to continue their offending through different counties on an almost daily basis. In mid-November, the three Sadams committed a particularly unpleasant robbery, The South Oxfordshire village of Woodcote has a close-knit community with the local post office at the centre of this community. It was 4.45pm when the masked raiders burst into the post office and grabbed a customer before pointing a gun at his head. The victim, Gary Bollon, stood petrified as he feared for his life whilst the other two robbers threatened staff for money. Can you imagine how Gary must have felt with this horrendously hooded figure stood alongside And threatening to shoot him in the head. Gary, though, in the face of such fear, showed remarkable composure and he calmly pleaded with the gunman to think of his young daughter. The staff too held firm, and as Gary was released, the trio ran off without any money, but left behind them a trail of traumatised men, women, and children. Late in November, the gang were back in South Wales. At eleven twenty p.m. on November the twenty-third, landlord Paul Stevens was enjoying a drink at his pub, the Greyhound Inn in the Gower near Swansea, after closing. There were three blokes in balaclavas, said Mr. Stevens. The first of them came with a baseball bat. Me and two regulars were sitting in front of the bar, and they walked in behind it. He took a swing with his bat, hitting one of us. "'Regular in the pub, Dave Cowley, said he was caught by surprise, but was quick to react. "'He hit me a glancing blow on the side of the head, so we retaliated. "'I threw some beer in a pint glass at them, "'and then we told them to go away in no uncertain terms,' Mr Stevens added. "'The other bloke we were drinking with saw a knife, as well as the base, "'and believes the other two had knives too. "'There was no question they were violent.' Mr Cowley and Mr Stevens chased the empty-handed gang out of the pub. But just 90 minutes later, they targeted another pub in Neath nearby. John Highland, the owner, said, It was in the early hours of the morning. We'd had a charity quiz and the last customers had left. I was locking up but turned around to see a gang had come round the bar. I saw four of them in total. One of the guys was pointing something at me. Another had a baseball bat raised and the third had a gun. I looked at them in their balaclavas and they said, it's a hold up and I thought, I'm in mega trouble here. I said, don't make a noise, please don't wake my wife. So I went upstairs with them and pointed to the safe. When they were done, they left me upstairs and when it was silent, I crept downstairs and phoned 999. By now the hunt for the men involved more than 200 police officers from eight different forces. Officers had dubbed the investigation Operation Frontier, and the detectives investigating the offences formally linked the four Welsh robberies the gang had committed and used the home's computer system. Incident rooms had been set up in Cardiff and Pontypool, and these were connected by a computer link, which allowed for all information, evidence, and intelligence gathered from the four robberies to be analysed. And success. This provided police with their first suspect. Mark Davis from Neath in South Wales. He was 27 and had been hiring a series of cars in both England and Wales and was staying in hotels anywhere along the M4 corridor. Sounds a bit like my mate Alan Partridge, living the dream in a hotel and operating on the M4. It's not quite living the dream on the open road, is it? It's not quite Route 66 on a Harley. But due to this transient lifestyle, he was difficult to trace and operations were put in place to locate him And also to try and predict where the group might strike next. Links had now been made with the English police forces and their investigating teams. And just over a week later, a significant breakthrough was made when two of Davis's accomplices were identified. The pair were Gary Collins and James Meal. Thames Valley police raided a flat known to be used by the trio, but although the offenders were not there, clothing, balaclavas, and a handgun were recovered all of which positively linked them with the robberies. This proved to be the major catalyst, as a further address was then quickly raided, and on the 1st of December, 25-year-old Jamie Meal was arrested at a house in Farnborough. By this time, the gang had already racked up a total of 18 armed offences. There was then a seize in the robberies. Was this some early Christmas goodwill shown from the gang? Or were they deciding to lie low for a period, whilst the intensive police investigation carried on around them but suddenly they resumed again on the 10th of December at a social club in Bridgend in South Wales. The ongoing police operation had been trying to predict where they might strike next and as a result the three men were seen by police having just committed a robbery in Dovid. Proving as elusive as they were vicious they managed to escape the police and dump the getaway car in South Wales before escaping back to England in another hire car. The police search for the three led to a meticulous sweep of all hotels off the M4 corridor between Swansea and London. But the hired getaway car was finally located near the Heston service station near Chiswick in West London. And armed police from the Met Police Service were able to swoop in and arrest Davis in his hotel room. Two days later in Reading, 22-year-old Gary Collins was also finally arrested. And police had by now discovered that Collins was in fact the stepbrother of Meal. How proud their families must have been. Finally, after their trail of violent robberies, the masked men were remanded in custody. And despite Collins and Davis, both pleading guilty to 21 counts of conspiracy to rob and firearms offences, Jamie Meal, he incredibly denied his part in the crimes and pleaded not guilty, leading to a trial to be heard at Reading Crown Court. So with Meal pleading his innocence he was forced to stand trial alone, where his defence centred around claims that Davis had been trying to frame Meal as the third robber, despite the eyewitness accounts, the extensive CCTV footage, and DNA evidence that linked him to the crimes. Somewhat bizarrely, his explanation as to why his DNA was found on one of the masks was that he'd worn it during a night of passion with his girlfriend. Hey, no comment from me here. Whatever worked for him, it's, it's all good with me. The court also heard where the inspiration for the mask came from. It transpired that after the first robbery, the gang headed off to Blackpool in the northwest of England to celebrate their success. Whilst there, they purchased the three masks from a joke shop and decided to wear these during the raids. The man charged with defending Meal was John Whitfield. And although, maybe you're with me here, I rarely feel sorry for solicitors, he did have a particularly tough brief. He argued that despite his client willingly participating in the crimes, it was actually Davis who was the ringleader of the operation. The court was told that Davis and Meal had first met when they were in the slammer at Winchester and Davis contacted his new acquaintance upon his release from prison in the autumn of 2003. It was at this time they joined up with Meal's stepbrother, Gary Collins, and the gang was formed. Soon it was time for Davis to give evidence at the trial And this time it was him testifying against Meal. Davis, who was the oldest of the gang, described how they looked to prey upon soft targets such as pubs and post offices. And they would crack victims over the head with baseball bats or take staff members hostage with a gun to their head, all aimed at traumatising their victims sufficiently for them to hand over money to them. In fairness to Davis, he certainly didn't try to minimise his part in what had happened. Indeed, he insisted they were pretty much as bad as each other, stating, We were all ruthless, all committing armed robberies together. He did at least offer some empathy and remorse for his part in the robberies, claiming that, There hasn't been one day since that I haven't thought about what I've done in the last year. I regret it. Clearly, we we're unsure whether this was genuine remorse or stated merely in the hope that it may reduce his inevitable prison sentence. I imagine we agree here that his only real regret was probably getting caught. Talking about Gary Collins, he even complained to police that he actually, I quote, had a heart of gold and he fully intended to turn his back on a life of crime. Simon Sterling, who defended Collins, reiterated that his client was indeed full of remorse and that he no longer wanted any part in the criminal world. That will be me finished with crime, said Collins. Hopefully I will get a trade and get on with life. I tried being a big man, and I ain't. Prosecutor Mayo illustrated vividly just how much fear the three men had instilled in many small communities. He announced that during one raid, Meal had bludgeoned a pub landlord repeatedly over the head as he lay there bleeding on the floor. The victim's blood from this robbery was found on Meal's hooded top worn during the robberies. Mayo went on to call the group a marauding band of robbers who attacked what they regarded as soft targets small post offices, local convenience stores and public houses. When they went to rob, they were armed with handguns, knives and baseball bats. He also asserted that with these weapons, the group were more than happy to dish out gratuitous violence to anyone who was unfortunate enough to have been in any of the crime scenes. As the four-week trial came to a close, all that was left was for the jury to deliver their verdicts on meal. Meal folded his arms in contempt as he awaited his fate, but then reeled in shock as one by one the jury found him unanimously guilty of 18 firearms offences, as well as conspiracy to commit robbery. So now Meal had been found guilty, the three were left to await their sentence, which Judge Joey Smith adjourned until October 28th. At the conclusion of the trial, Detective Chief Inspector Dave Lewis of Thames Valley Police Asserted that Meal was a ruthless and cunning individual who had no consideration for his victims. I hope that this conviction sends out a clear message to criminals involved in armed robbery that we will catch those responsible and bring them to justice. On the day of sentencing, it was clear that all three men would receive significant sentences for the violence they packed into just seven weeks in the winter of 2003. I always can't help wondering how they must have felt in their cells the night before, knowing that tomorrow was the day when they would find out just how much more of their youth would be wasted in prison. Judge Smith sentenced Meal to the longest prison term of the three. He received 18 years for his involvement. Meal had made no secret of his penchant for expensive drugs and designer clothes. He loved a bit of cocaine. And this chase for a flashy lifestyle is what led him down this violent path. Collins, the youngest of the group, was given a 12 and a half year sentence for conspiracy to rob, 21 firearms offences, GBH and theft of a check. Davis was sentenced to 12 years for conspiracy to rob, 19 firearms offences and one count of burglary. As he had given a full admission of guilt and cooperated fully with the police, the judge was more lenient with him as she may otherwise have been. As we mentioned earlier, the interrelated nature of this case in terms of the police forces involved made this a far from normal type of situation for the police. Following the sentence of the three Saddams, the three Welsh forces involved said that any investigation of this complexity and magnitude will bring huge challenges for the police service. The Welsh and English police forces were able to meet this challenge and were able to respond effectively and positively, not only bringing the offenders to justice but convicting them for 21 offences of armed robbery. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Whilst the real Saddam Hussein was being toppled from power in the Middle East, only a few months later, so too were the three imitation Saddams, who had wreaked so much havoc in such a small amount of time across southern England and Wales. Although they'd only stolen around 32,000 between the combined raids, the huge shadow they cast over the local communities involved and the psychological effect they'd had on the victims was far, far greater. It always interests me that these ad hoc gangs, if they can stay lucky, are able to get away with a number of small robberies. But I guess in the end, getting away with it is probably the worst thing for them, as it leads them to believe that they're never going to get caught, and inevitably their luck runs out. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. A big thank you to Chris Wood, for his excellent work on this fascinating episode. I really enjoyed it. Please support the show by joining us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where for just £3 a month, you'll have access to the eight monthly full-length episodes, along with other exclusive content. Please also do join our Facebook group to discuss all aspects of UK True Crime. Finally, I have one Saddam Hussein fact. Did you know that his favourite tipple was Mateus Rosé? Well, there you go. On that note, that's all for me for this week. So as I head off to Wikipedia to prepare next week's show, have an awesome day and I look forward to speaking with you next week. Cheerio.